Today on the Talent Cast, I'm not going to set up a lab in California with a bunch of scientists and get a show on Discovery Network or whatever, but I'm, I'm still going to do some myth busting. Howdy. Welcome to The Talent Cast, where we talk about the new world of talent acquisition and recruitment marketing. I, am always, am your host, James Ellis. Uh, I was bitten by a radioactive recruiter once and discovered I had strange new powers, and thus, we are here. This podcast is not sponsored or supported by anyone whatsoever. We've instituted a 100% no-pitching rule. We're here to learn, teach, and discuss so we can all become better recruitment marketing thinkers. I'm not here to sell you anything. If you like this podcast, and I really hope you do, tell the world on LinkedIn and Twitter and any other place you're professionally social. I'm pretty sure your friends don't care. Uh, You can always review us on iTunes or Google Play. We really appreciate that. Uh, As always, if you have comments, questions, topic suggestions, if you would like me to discuss uh, your particular problem, if you know someone I should interview, reach out to me on the Twitter. It's The War for Talent. That's right, The War for Talent. Or just go to our website. We're at thetalentcast.com, thetalentcast.com. Otherwise, here we go. Hope you enjoy. Hey, it's James Ellis. How you doing? Welcome to the Talent Cast. Good morning. Coffee's brewed. Ready to go. Here I am at the bunker, uh, ready to talk to you a little bit for your Monday morning. Uh, thanks to the comments and the feedback I've gotten from a handful of people who have just, uh, you've made my week. Trust me. Thank you so much for reaching out to me. I appreciate that. Love to hear that any of this is going anywhere. This is just wonderful to hear. Thank you so much. Um, today we're talk. We're doing a little myth busting. We're doing social myth myth busting specifically. Um, and what I really want to dive into are these two ideas that I know that have been bounced around, and on some levels are just assumptions, and are just the bedrock of oh well, yeah, you gotta right, you gotta right, yeah, well, <laughs> you gotta. Uh, and those two things are hashtags and the time you publish to social. So um, they're both myths and to some extent they're both dumb and they need to go away but not completely so I want to kind of dive into them a little bit. Um, this is going to luckily be the last uh, uh, tactical one for a bit. I think I've got a couple of good tactical ones in a row. I'm going to go bounce back towards something a little broader before I bounce back again um, just so you know what's in my head. Um, so let's talk about hashtags. So hashtags, first off, hashtags only matter in two social channels. They only matter in Twitter and in Instagram. I know LinkedIn. You know, you know. You keep trying hashtags, and you're just not built for it. No one really takes it seriously. So, yes, it technically works. But anything I say about hashtags for Twitter that you know suggests that perhaps they're not the most important thing goes ten times more for for LinkedIn. They just never really clicked for LinkedIn, and I know they exist. But don't don't. We're gonna walk right past that one. So hashtags. If you don't know, and by now. Gosh, I hope you do, but we're going to do a quick synopsis. Uh, hashtags are the little uh, pound symbol or the tic-tac-toe thing and the word or term you put after it that it effectively is metadata. It effectively says, um, you know, so let's do it this way. Um, I'm leaving you. Hashtag just kidding. So hashtag is the metadata that says, look, you may not be able to read the context in my voice on this tweet. However, let me tell you the subtext. This is a joke. This is funny. Or there's a punchline to it. Um I'm looking for, and I'm, and I'm spitballing, and Twitter jokes take a minute, take some time to do. Uh, they, they, they supply more information about the actual tweet that isn't technically 
part of the tweet, even though it is. It's one of those kabuki theater moments where we all choose to ignore that it's not part of it. Uh, if I say things like, have you tried rebooting the country? Uh, you know, have you tried turning the country on and off? Hashtag asking for a friend. Uh, the asking for a friend part implies that it's not about me, but obviously it kind of is, and it's a joke, and it's a yada, yada, yada. So and the asking for a friend one is a good one. Um, so it's metadata. It's really data and information text that isn't actually part of the tweet itself. Um, anybody can make one. You want to make one right now? This is Baba Booey. Go for it. Someone already has, but and chances are someone's already made one of anything. Um, but they're there, and you just make them, and you just do them. And now, for the first, now for the most part, when Twitter launched, hashtags were not really a thing. In fact, they weren't even real. Uh, some one of the, some user actually, if I remember correctly, actually started to put data in it with a hashtag. Um, and Twitter saw it and went, huh, that's interesting. We never thought of metadata like that. And they started to implement tools around it. So for example, if you see a tweet with a hashtag, you can click the hashtag and you will suddenly, and it will search all tweets with that hashtag. So if you type in, um, you know, some uh, a tweet and the hashtag is uh, next chat, hashtag next chat, which by the way is a Twitter chat. I'm going to talk about that in a second. Um, it will find all of the other tweets with the hashtag next chat. Here's the trick. And everybody thinks, oh, well, oh, that's fantastic. I'm going to put in Chicago jobs and Chicago IT jobs and IT jobs and nursing jobs. And those tweets exist, and they're very, very popular, mostly by companies who are spamming the heck out of the Twitter. But they're, they're, they're popular in terms of pure volume of use. There are a lot of people putting those tweets in. I will suggest that no one, no one searches for that. The days of using Twitter to search for a job based on a hashtag Assuming they ever were, their heyday was very unhey. Um, you know, maybe about four or five years ago, you might see something, uh, see a little use of it, but it, that the volume of tweets out there is just too big. And frankly, um, if you type in Chicago IT jobs, remember you have an audience of two or three million potential people in the Chicago land area. Do you think two or three million people are going to click that? No. And how many are IT? And if you're in um, Evanston and you're looking at a job downtown, those might as well be two different states, let alone all in the same city. And it's 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 the kind of hashtag that people put on a job just because they feel like they have to do something, right? They have to do something. There are there are a handful of hashtags where there seems to be some value. Um, the nursing hashtag and the sales jobs hashtag for whatever reason seem to have the tiniest bit of traction again it's a game of of relative levels this is not going to set the world on fire it's turning around and stopping this uh, for those of you who have already just paused this podcast to go through sales jobs and nursing jobs in your your twitter uh, you're gonna miss this part where i say yeah it's kind of like throwing an extra twig onto the fire it might be something but you're barely gonna notice and it. it's it's there there is some traction but the teeniest bit so in the end it's really not a lot of traction the only way hashtags really make oh and let's talk about instagram um instagram same way uh, you know you can throw as many hashtags as you want i have plenty of people i know who throw 30 and 40 because there's really almost no textual limit to instagram you can put a tiny little essay down there if you wanted no one will read it but you could if you were so inclined and since it's all mobile you'd be typing that little essay with your tiny little you know thumbs on the tiny little screen uh best of luck hope you don't sprain anything um, but you can put as many hashtags as you want. So for example, um, I have a kid. I have a two-year-old. She's delightful and she's a monster and all the good things that a two-year-old's supposed to be and she's doing great. And I like to take pictures of her because I'm a dad and that's what dads do. Uh, I don't feel like I should be judged for that too harshly. Um, and I'll throw them on Instagram. 
just because my friends and family and, you know, coworkers and what have you think my kid's hilarious. And because my kid's kind of hilarious because all two-year-olds are kind of hilarious. Um, and I'll throw a couple of hashtags on. And just to see how they work, I'll throw on things like hashtag Chicago baby and hashtag Chicago baby clothes or she's doing something particularly interesting. I'll try and find other hashtags. And honestly, I think Instagram does a better job highlighting, hey, look, there's hashtags for that thing. So if you type in hashtag Chicago, it will tell you all the available hashtags starting with Chicago in order of, of, of preference, in order of volume, and apparently Chicago Bulls and Chicago Bears are the most important thing in Chicago. Okay, great. Um, and the Cubs, obviously a couple weeks, a couple months ago that they were topping everybody out. Um, you know, six million hashtag uh, Instagram posts with that hashtag. And you can start to add, keep typing and you can narrow it down. So if you type in Chicago Baby, suddenly there's a couple thousand hashtags used about that. And if you type Chicago Baby Lakeview or Chicago Baby this, Chicago Baby that, it gets smaller and smaller and smaller. So I think Instagram has done a great job kind of telling you these are the number of people who've put hashtags in. But I think the trick is the number of people who put the hashtag in has no connection whatsoever to how useful it is, how many people actually use it. So I know someone who likes to take pictures of food, and when they take a picture of food, they follow it with at least 30 hashtags. It's a lot. Um, thank you, Instagram, for kind of snipping it after a couple of characters. Um, but she's trying to figure out maybe somebody will do this. And this is purely about a, gaining attraction. Maybe somebody in the foodie community will look at it. If it's pasta foodie or if it's meat foodie or if it's delicious or if it's after hours or if it's Chicago or if it's uh, Roscoe Village or if it's Wicker Park or it's a, you throw as many of those hashtags on in the hope that someone clicks on it and goes, oh, oh man, this person takes a lot of good pictures of food. I'm going to follow them. Now, again, the, the thought process that says uh, you take a lot of pictures of food, therefore I should follow you, beyond me but whatever it's how it's supposed to be but i will tell you it's not going to set the world on fire it's not a magical thing it's not going i mean you might get a few in so for the chicago baby one i've had a couple of followers maybe a dozen and maybe that's okay because i don't know that i want too many strangers taking too many pictures of my baby um but it's it, there's something there it's just not necessarily there you know who follows tw uh, hashtags and follows people because of hashtags spammers i have had twice as many women beautiful half-naked women try to tell me they're looking for a man um in the most broken english possible uh in their bios who are liking my baby pictures my child's pictures because of the hashtag so yeah um excuse me yes that's 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 maybe of limited value to you your mileage may vary taking a sip of coffee mm. yeah that's good coffee so hashtags are kind of limited they're not going to draw people in what are the case studies in which they work well there are two clear case studies in my mind in which hashtags actually do make a difference and do have a lot of value and the first is like i've mentioned twitter chats now, I've been super um, active on Twitter chats as of late. Uh, one, to kind of do research on this, but two, just because I, I feel like it's been a while since I've been into them, and um, I wanted to see what was still around and how much it was still using. And it's, 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 they're still fairly popular among, amongst a tiny set of people. Um, that makes it a tiny set of people. That doesn't sound right. It's, it's among the ardent followers of a given topic. Now, personally, my biggest problem with Twitter chats is figuring out where they are. Um, you, it, it's tough to Google... Twitter chats because the Twitter chats exist on Twitter and while Twitter will Google or Google will Twitter, oh gosh, Google will Google Twitter. Sally, she sells seashores by the sea cells. Um, while Google will Google Twitter, the information is not, it's 140 characters, there's not a lot of data. So let's say there's a Twitter chat noon on a Thursday, uh, Central Standard Time. Um, 
you know, I have to find people who will aggregate entire Twitter chats of everybody else's. Hey, here are a bunch of Twitter chats. There's a couple of them. The problem is they're super out of date. So if you find them, you're like, well, cool. That one, that, you know, like like T-Chat. T-Chat was a huge one a year and a half ago, two years ago, maybe even longer. Huge, huge, huge. Hey, guys, big fans. Um, and they just disappeared. Now, I'm not, I know there was a, there was a decision. You know, it didn't like die off because of lack of interest. There was a decision made. They actually switched it over to um, Next Chat. Um, which you know is still moving along and plugging along and doing good work, but um, they made a shift, and so Next Chat isn't well populated in the directories of Twitter chats, but T Chat is because it was really really popular in its day, and so everybody would list it. So I see all these directories of Twitter chats and T Chats there, but you know the other ones aren't. So a lot of them are out of date, and there's no you know, and, and they're not as let's call it as, as sexy as they used to be. Um, not people aren't interested in talking about it, so people aren't looking and collecting that information. There's not a lot of value there. So it's tough to find one. If you find one and you can find a community you like, stick with it. Man, that's that's a lot of work. Um, the problem, of course, is what I just said. People, and I say, when I say people, I mean companies say, oh, we need to push more jobs. We should make a Twitter chat. And you're like, <laughs> okay. The reason why T-Chat failed was not because people walked away, was because they had to make a shift. The thing is, Twitter chats are a long, long tail game. The first Twitter chat you do, I don't care how much you promote it, unless you're giving away puppies and free beer, you're going to get three people. It's going to take five minutes. It's going to be sparse. And the problem really there is those three people might say, okay, this is starting and we'll see how this goes. But they also might say, this sucked. I'm gone. I'm telling everybody that particular Twitter chat is stupid and no one should do it. And they've poisoned the well and you're doomed. It's very tough to get a new Twitter chat off the ground, to get enough critical mass of people to show up to the first one and to say, look, we got some value out of this to either one, tell some friends, or two, kind of move it forward. So you can't just up and make a Twitter chat. Like much like a, ta- like a community, a real true community, and I mean not like talent communities like we think of communities, but I mean forums where people actually have conversations, those are um, – they take a long time to, to, to manifest themselves, to establish themselves, to plant their flag and say, this is who we are and this is what we're all about and these are the community members I'm in I, you know, who are here and here are the people who are going to help and here are the regulars and here are the jokesters and here are the, usual, you know, the occasionals and you know, they, everybody has kind of a role and some weeks or months or whatever, you know, everybody shows up and it's a fantastic and it's a, it's a hoot and a holler and everybody does crazy stuff and some weeks or months it's really quiet and you want to make sure you've got good topics and the topics make sense to people and the people know the topics ahead of time so they can say oh it's not just that the tweet twitter chat is popular it's that the po- the, the, the 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 subject matter might be really interesting i'm far more inclined to set a half hour an hour out of my almost likely work day to pay attention and participate in that because it's a big ask hey every week at tuesday at 10 um Show up, stop working, and do this thing. Yeah, it's 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 a big ask. You better be providing some value. So if you think you can just up and make a Twitter chat, sure, start today. I will talk to you in a year when it's actually worth something. Maybe, maybe. It's a lot of work. So Twitter chats are fantastic when you build them and when you can commit to them and when you can care and feed that particular monster enough that it grows big enough that you can actually do something with it. But man, those first couple of months, really tough to do work <laughs> not a lot of value you're gonna feel like you're pushing a rope up a hill it's gonna feel like you're you're you're, you're gonna you're question what the heck are you spending your time doing and i know plenty of companies who try and make twitter chats happen and it's just hard to make twitter chats happen trust me um another sip of coffee the last 
way you can use a hashtag, and this is the way I think it is most useful, and I think it's only useful to a very particular audience, is when you're building some sort of um, a social campaign. So let's say you're a company and you're launching um, – and um, by the way, you know, I, I kind of skipped over, but it's connected to things like Nurses Week, things like, um, you know, people who try to do newsjacking. It doesn't really work that way. It, it, people that it was that was a thing for like twelve seconds. Don't you know bother doing it um, unless I mean Oreo is the the brand standard for how do you do true. Um, newsjacking where the Super Bowl power line, this is what, five, six, seven years ago, the power went off in the Super Bowl um, and uh, what was it, Ravens and, 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 and 49ers, I think, and the power went, their generator just died and so the whole stadium went dark and so they went to commercial and we were talking about it and the, the team over at Oreo who in, like with, an, with their agency, instead of saying, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to build a bunch of tweets and should the the, the Ravens win or the Ravens score, we'll say this tweet. And when the Niners score, we'll say this tweet. And when this happens, and instead of coming up with all these um, ideas of what might happen, when, of course, a blackout at the Super Bowl is something that never showed up in that list, they decided, look, look, we're just going to hunger down for the bowl. We're going to bring our team together. We're going to have our client contact, someone who can say yes, someone who can approve things in the room or at least on the line. Um, and when stuff happens, we'll try and do it all in real time. And the thing is at the time, and it's still relatively true, agencies took on average 45 days to approve any kind of work, even if it was a 140-character tweet. Um, so the fact that they were all in the room and looking and watching and the lights go out and they go, oh, we got to do something about this, they spitballed it, they bounced it back and forth, they tried an idea, they what about this, what about this, they you know, whittled down the ideas to something they were happy with, they picked up the client and they take hey, client, here's what we're doing, here's Super Bowl lights are off, can you very immediately approve this thing so we can get it out this second? I'm sure as they were speaking, um, some uh, junior member of that team was typing the, tw the tweet into the program, you know, finger hovering over the publish button, and the client approved it, they hit publish, and they were the first real kind of example of real-time professional tweeting like that, and it was amazing to the point where I still see in Twitter chats people probably, what about Oreo? And they're like, yeah. Okay, so that's one of those stories where great and they've set the stage that this is how it's supposed to be done and you know what now it's not special you know there's there's plenty of people for whom there's a, a guy in sales who says i can help you double your sales in 24 hours all you need to know is this one simple trick well his trick is you call before nine and after five in the hopes that you can avoid the boss's secretary one how old is this trick? Two, who still has a secretary? It's not that's, that doesn't work anymore. What worked then doesn't work anymore because the context has changed. And I think for that same kind of model that trying to news jack, yes, there's a great example of someone who did it. Now, bring to me examples of companies doing that well or not. Get, half the time they do it, the examples you can show me are companies getting into trouble by being too fast on the draw and not really thinking through the repercussions of what that means. Like Kenneth Cole... Uh, and uh, what was it, um, Egypt Spring, um, you know, saying some really stupid, crass thing. Not even It wasn't even completely crass. It just completely missed the tone of what Egypt Spring was all about um, and looked like a jerk because of it, the whole company, you know, or whoever the tweet was. And so it really, they got a black eye on that one. And so those are the examples people can bring to you now. The good examples don't seem to register. So newsjacking via Twitter, you know, just because – um, Beyonce is having twins is a hashtag right now. By the way, congratulations, Beyonce. I'm, I know you needed to hear that from me. Um, 
What do you got to say about that? Nothing, nothing, nothing. I mean, unless you sell children's clothes and they're particularly interesting for some reason to Beyonce in that audience, maybe you st- reach out and do a PR move instead of a, a tweet. Just don't, just don't, just don't. So newsjacking is really dumb. And But at the same time, um, you can use that same model of thinking for campaigns internally. So let's say you are celebrating Earth Week and your company is not uh, one of those companies who pollutes the earth all day long and not one of those companies who um, is super famous for putting pipelines here and there and, and, and maybe tipping over a, a boat of oil or whatever and all those companies who you know the con- who do a lot of work in the environmental space mostly to counteract the unpleasantness that is the realities of that particular business. Let's say you're a, a B Corp. And for those of you who don't know, a B Corp is a type of corporation in which doing public and social good is baked into their charter. They get certain tax breaks because of it. It's a super cool idea. The biggest one you might know of is something called Ben and Jerry's. Um, it doesn't all have to be liberal hippie ice cream people, but good for them for doing that. Uh, but B Corps are super cool. I think it's a great idea. So let's say you're a B Corp and while, oh, 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 um, I'm pretty sure Method, that soap company you see a lot at Target uh, with the good looking bottles and the cool pretty soaps, um, I think they're a B Corp too. I might want to double check that, um, but again, you know, it's not so much that they're, a ma- you know, that they're an ice cream company, or but they're, they're just giving something back to social good based. You know, the, some of the profits go back to social good, and it's a really cool idea. Anyway, so you know, Method is well known for being this kind of company where they kind of give back and they're trying to be environmentally conscious of these things. They can celebrate Earth Week and that makes sense. And what they might want to do is say, okay, for Earth Week, all of our staff are going to do X and all of our customers are going to do X and we really want you to do X. And when you do X, take a picture of it and put this hashtag on it, Method Earth Day or Method Earth Week or whatever you come up with. I'm sure you've got a creative team who can come up with stuff 20 times better than me. Um, And you come up with it and you ask people to post. Great. That's fantastic. Um, last year, you may remember when some jerks said that women engineers were unattractive and hideous crones and um, blah, 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 blah. And uh, for some reason, gosh, I can't imagine why, women engineers and scientists took some sort of offense and they started taking pictures of themselves uh, as attractive human beings, as, you know, they're no different than you and me, uh, and saying with a hashtag, I look like an engineer, I look like a scientist, and it went pretty viral and you started to see people taking the pictures of themselves in their labs or in their space, looking like real people, you know, look dressing like you and me and, and, and wearing makeup on occasion and not, you know, your standard, I don't know, stereotypical troll crone type person. So it was a big campaign and companies kind of went, oh wow, we hire a lot of scientists, there's women in STEM, we're committed to that, let's jump onto that trend. Now they weren't trying to add to it, but they are not, weren't trying to shift it, but they were just trying to kind of collect a little bit of, of juice from it and to say, look, we're part of this community. Unlike the the tweet in the Super Bowl, we were just like, oh, opportunistic thing we should do. People talking about the Super Bowl, a million people talking about the Super Bowl right now, we should jump on it too. Um, you know, So save your Oscar tweets and save your Super Bowl tweets for some other, you know, for your personal accounts. But if it's something that your company is connected to a bigger idea like AT&T and I look like a scientist or uh, a B Corp and Earth Day, and I'm just spitballing that one. If it's something where there's a clear and obvious connection to your company, you can jump onto it and I suggest you should. And I say, you know, ask people and there's got to be some work around it. You can't just say, oh, great, we'll just use this hashtag. It's got to be tell people you want to do this. Tell people what you want them to do. Have them take pictures. Tangentially to that, if you have a campaign for... Let's say you're trying to show, every, you know, uh, you're trying to show all of your employees in the wild or doing what they do to kind of build a better 
uh, impression or employer brand around the idea that you are very committed to work-life balance and you want people, all your employees to take pictures of what they do on the weekends or what they do at six o'clock, you know, that they're not all at work. Um, that's a campaign. You use a hashtag to kind of share that around. Now, having used a hashtag, don't think that anyone's ever going to click on your hashtag and say, oh, these are amazing pictures. The goal of this project is you use that hashtag so that you can go back and collect that information and collect all those photos and kind of aggregate them either in a, you know, there's plenty of tools who will do that. Um, embed them on your webpage or make a, you can make a, a storify thing where you can kind of line them up and tell a story around them and, and all that stuff. And it's a way of collecting and finding that information. And that can be super valuable. So for hashtags, that's really the only way this works. It's not about it's going to double my traffic or double my audience because I use the magical hashtag. It's not because I'm newsjacking. It's not because uh, any of that stuff. It's about the the real understanding how people use it. That people don't really click on the hashtag to do a search on the hashtag. It just doesn't work. You can't just up and make a Twitter chat. You really have to if you've decided to do it. And good on you if you want to do that. I don't know why I just turned Australian right there, but. Um, Go for it. It's just understand the, the limitations and the realities of what it is. So that's hashtags. So the other thing I want to talk to is um, when do you publish? Okay, so <clears throat> I need more coffee for this one. Um, so five years ago, heck, let's go back eight years ago. Eight years ago, um, before Facebook really started to, to really promote and build a bu its business around the concept that brands would be spending money to make ads and that's how they're gonna make money. Back in the days when Facebook was still going, I'm not really sure how we monetize this, but it's really cool having 500 million people, 500 million active user eyeballs on our site. Oh, there's gotta be a way to leverage that. Surely that we can think of something. Um, you know, it was a chronological feed. You saw everything your, your friends saw your, everything your friends did. Anybody you followed, you saw what they did. There was a roughly 100% organic reach, assuming people actually logged in. So if you didn't log in for a week, you didn't get that reach for that day because those people were gone. But if you, you know, if, if you're published on a regular basis and you have a large audience and Facebook was telling you you should go spend money on ads to build a large audience, um, they would see your stuff and they would see their friends' stuff and they would see stuff and stuff. Um, by the way, stuff and stuff is my new band, so you can't have that. That's mine. Um, and then, of course, Facebook realized, well, gosh, we've just encouraged all these businesses. And by the way, in the U.S. alone, 18 million businesses. You know that, right? 18 million businesses. So imagine if half of them decided to put a Facebook ad in. And by the way, more than half have. Um, and then let's bring in, I don't know, the rest of the world. Um, by the way, podcast downloaded by people in 18 countries. So I got to be very cognizant that you all aren't American and you know, welcome. Thank goodness. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of businesses out there. And if, if only a small fraction of them use Facebook, it's a, it, you get exactly what happened. It swamped your feed. And suddenly, suddenly people realized that um, if they could push stuff to your feed 10 times more than your friends and family, maybe they could get some powerful impressions and maybe they could do something with that. And then Facebook, and in my mind, there's a big valve knob, you know, like a wheel, like on a submarine or a power plant that um, they slowly turn and they slowly squeeze smaller and tall and then the, 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 the amount of organic reach gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And then what they did and they said, okay, we've kind of put it to its effective limit at one to 3%. And I think it, it's really 1%. Let's just go ahead and call it 1%. The organic reach that for every 100 people who follow you, only one of them will actually see your post um, unless something magical happens and most of that magic being money. Um, 
that's what you're going to get as a business. That's what you're going to get. You're going to we're going to treat you different <clears throat> than we than you know the the friend who or the parent who likes to take pictures of cats or who has interesting news to share. Um, they they want. I mean, and, and 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 to their credit, and for what you know, at the time I was giving Facebook a lot of shit about this. Um, to their credit. Um, you know, Facebook realized that it was very easy for Facebook to overwhelm and have no value whatsoever. If it's a bunch of cat memes and a bunch of brand posts, at some point people are going to say, why exactly am I following Facebook and their 500 million, soon to be 1 billion active monthly eyeballs would go away. And so they, what they did is they ran some algorithms and they bought a bunch of big data scientists type people and they said, okay, how do we look at how people are seeing information and how do we make sure that they get value out of it? And how do we balance that with our own you know, financial interest of showing them ads? So, you know, they did kind of like Google did where they scored things and they said, okay, this has high quality for this person. This has low quality for this person. And, you know, for a while there's a lot of, hey, memes aren't going to get any more points and, and memes aren't going to get much active uh, pushing anymore. So there's no value in, in talking about memes. And then sharing news stories, you know, had some value. And then, of course, this year it's a conversation about quote unquote fake news and do you share them and how do you know when it's fake news and blah, 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 blah. So Facebook was very, very, very concerned about how do we make sure that the feed of information we're providing our customers is of value, right? Um, that's if you don't, if, if Facebook doesn't have the eyeballs, Facebook, all Facebook's brains developing this stuff is effectively worthless. What matters more than anything is the eyeballs they have and, the, and then they can figure out how to leverage that. So one of the things they did with all these algorithms and filtering is they said, okay, we're going to show you things in a different order. We're not going to stick to chronological. We're going to say, we're going to show you the most important things first, what we think is and why most important, the things that are being commented on, the things that have connection to news stories, the things that um, you seem to care about. Um, they're, you know, if you show relationships in your Facebook account, it will connect some into some way. And again, it's a bit of a black box, so no one really knows. Um, but there's a good causation to say, um, Facebook will probably promote your mother's post to you and, and put it pretty high in the food chain relative to anybody else's uh, or in relative to anyone else who see who follows your, your mother um, just because that's your mom and you obviously, you want to have some sense of what your mom's up to. Um, whereas the friend from high school who you haven't commented or said anything on in months, if not years, that gets far, farther down the list. Um, you know, the, the, when, when that friend from high school from many, many, many years ago posts yet another meme about nothing that matters to you, that's going to get buried in the mix. So what happened was is Facebook kind of flipped the switch and says, we're not doing this, this news feed thing, which at one point was a crazy idea, now is the central tenet of their entire existence. Um, we're not going to do it chronologically, strictly chronologically. There's still a chronological element to it, but that's just one of so, so many. For example, is it your mom? Um, and by the way, that's a series of is that your mom jokes I should be making and I'm not. <laughs> so you're welcome. Um, so Facebook feed isn't chronological. So you'll see stuff posted 20 seconds ago and 12 hours ago as if they're right next to each other. And you might ask yourself, boy, this person is unpopular that their friend, whole entire friend list are publishing once every 12 hours. And that's not true. Those are just the most important things within the last 12 to 24 hours that Facebook's showing you. And Facebook will keep track of the stuff it shows you. And you know, it will, you know, try not to show you the same thing over and over and over again unless it's getting a crazy amount of activity. Um, there's a guy, Matt Finale. Hey, Matt, who runs a, a industrial band. And by runs an industrial band, what I mean is he has a garage and he uses it to make sounds. Calling it music, it's getting there. It's, it's in, for the longest time, his one of his most interesting instruments was a vacuum tube. And I don't mean um, 
the thing that powers an amp, but I mean the tube off of his vacuum cleaner that he would put noise and sounds through, and that was an instrument he would sing through. It was, uh, it was an industrial band, it, it, and Matt's an incredibly nice guy, an incredibly sweet guy, and he will, he will love the fact that I'm teasing him on this weird podcast. However, however, because the world is like that, the dude has thousands of fans. And I mean thousands of ardent fans. He doesn't make a lot of money doing this, if any money, but when he run a Kickstarter, he got thirty or $40,000 to make his next album. Um, of course, that's how much it costs to then distribute that album to all those people, but whatever. Um, so when he posts something, he's got thousands of followers and fans who will comment on stuff. So his stuff keeps popping up to the top of my feed all the time because it looks like all of He looks famous in Facebook's mind, um, and Facebook wants to let me know that someone famous I'm connected to, there's a lot of stuff happening on his account. So there's that. It was a weird digression. Um, and then once Facebook did it, everybody else, and by everybody else, I mean mostly LinkedIn and Twitter, kind of looked around and went, yeah, that seems right too. Yeah, I think we have to concern ourselves with the quality of our feed. So they also flipped a switch from strictly chronological to algorithmic. And what happened was, amongst so many other things like your boring posts got seen by nobody and fell off the face of the earth in a record amount of time, um, and your, your very, very, very valuable and interesting posts had a longer half-life, um, so there's the good and the bad. Um, and you couldn't, you had to really focus on the quality of your post. You couldn't play the game of, okay, all my Facebook fans and all my Twitter fans are online at Tuesday at two o'clock. That's when I publish. And there's infographics and heat maps and really seriously looking um, data uh, info, in, uh, visualization tools that will show you very seriously that that Tuesday at two o'clock and Thursday at four o'clock are the magic hours for when you tweet. Um, or when you Facebook post. And everybody knows that no one, you shouldn't post between 10 and, and, and noon because everybody's at work and no one checks their Facebook and Twitter because you don't ever check your Facebook and your Twitter and your, and your staff never check your Facebook and Twitter during office hours, of course. No, of course not. You should only publish um, during lunch hours and uh, when people are excuse me, commuting in and out of the office. Now, of course, the world is round, so when people are commuting into your office on the West Coast, that's lunchtime on the East Coast. So, yeah, how are you doing that? When do you pick a time to do that? Let's, pre let's presume you're not a specifically local brand, that you're a national and, and global brand. How do you take that into account? And the truth is, don't. Don't. You are using incorrect understanding of how Facebook and Twitter works. The algorithmic model, a non-chronological model, effectively means what time you publish is almost irrelevant. It doesn't matter anymore. If you're a regional and global brand, even more so. Um, you know, the, these things like you can only uh, publish when people are commuting or at lunch, these are effectively the old wives' tales of social media. Um, it was something handed down from back when uh, from 10 years ago, back or maybe eight years ago. No, coming up on 10 years ago, and Twitter's about 12 years old now. Um, you know, back when, you know, it was a straight feed. It was a straight, a strictly straight, 100% organic reach, chronological news feed, and you tried to game the system of trying to figure out, okay, when are my readers reading? Great. When you see that infographic and that heat map that says, okay, here are all the times of the day when your audience is online and when you should publish, and one of those, two or three of those spots are like, deep crimson red like murder red uh and most of the and a lot of the other spaces are calm serene blue implying that the 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 the, the 
that the difference between those spaces is is a is a is a magnitude of order. Um, you know, that it's a difference between one person on on Facebook versus twenty thousand people on Facebook. That's a lie. There's no scale on any of those things. You know, it might turn out that in the blue area, uh, you know, ninety percent of your follower base is on that, and in, in on the red space, ninety-seven percent of your fan base. That's yes, that's a difference, but there's no relative scale. So it's a bunch of infographic lying. Um, don't take that stuff too seriously. You just have to know that if you write something of interest, and so long as you don't bury it at two in the morning when no one in your relative area is going to be looking. Um, you can publish it pretty much whenever. You know, 115 versus 215, don't care. Do not care. Does not matter. Um, Friday versus Saturday, there, okay, there you have a thing. Um, if you have a, a brand that you, you're all about work and you really are trying to reach people at work, guess what? Not, not so many people working on a Saturday. Um, I find that on my LinkedIn posts, I have a very large European following. Hey, gentlemen and women, thank you so much. Um, I get like waves of followers. So I'll pub if I publish something and it, it kind of clicks, and that doesn't happen every often, I know that and I love it when it does, um, you get an initial wave in North America when people start to see it and like it um, when they're starting their day. And maybe you'll get another wave when they're ending their day or when someone sends it to them and then it kind of dies down and you get a second wave when the sun travels around the earth and starts to hit that wonderful continent we like to call Europe. And those people start to see it and they start to, and there's actually a secondary tiny wave where the Europeans will start to influence their North American friends. So I get a secondary wave for the North America thing. It's super cool. Um, but I don't expect that when I send that tweet 15 minutes later, everyone who was going to see it has seen it, which is the old way. Now I know that effectively I need a 24-hour window in which I'm publishing my tweet. So I try not to publish things Friday afternoon because even in a 24-hour window, I'm asking for trouble because by then the Europeans have already <clears throat> excuse me, have already gone away, gone to the pub uh, and gone to the, the bar and done whatever wonderful people do in Europe at the end, at the end of the work week. And even if you give them 24 hours, that's... Saturday morning and Saturday afternoon, and no one's looking at LinkedIn. Um, I sometimes wonder if LinkedIn uh, donates its spare CPU cycles on the weekends and holidays to uh, Search for Intelligent Life or Curing Cancer, because they should, because I got to imagine. And if someone from LinkedIn servers wants to ping in with data on this, I'd love to hear it. What the, the relative CPU usage of midday on a Tuesday when everybody in the world is looking for a job versus Saturday afternoon or Sunday e or Sunday morning. I'd love to know how much unused uh, computing power is just sitting there waiting for something to happen. Um, so anyway, so really when you publish is not quite immaterial, but really close to it, really, really close to it. Your goal is not to figure out what's the best time to publish. Um, your goal is to write quality. As I said many times in this podcast, if it's an easy trick to figure out, everyone already, everyone already has, and therefore that easy trick is worthless. Everyone has seen that infographic that says Tuesday at 2 o'clock and Thursday at, at, at 10 are the magic times to do it. Everybody's publishing it. If you join in, you're just another voice in the crowd, and you're not going to get what you want. So there's another myth busted. So that's what I wanted to do. I busted some myths, hashtags, and time to post. Um, Hopefully you enjoyed that. So that was a good one. So 37 minutes, not too bad a time. So I'm going to close it out here. Like I said, the next one or two should be a little more broadly strategic um, or at least a little more less tactical. I, you know, I like to bounce it back and forth. Um, like to do both. I know some people love the tactical stuff. And they love the nitty gritty and they love the walkaways. Here's what to do and here's what not to do. And hopefully today was one of those. And then sometimes you just want a big idea that you can kind of chew on for a while. So 
As per usual, if you have questions, if you have comments, if you would like to talk about something on the quote-unquote air, if we're calling this air, um, tweet me. I'm on the Twitter, the old uh, The War for Talent, at The War for Talent. Um, I'm always on it, so please let me know. I'm active in Twitter chat, so you might see me around. Uh, also, if you want to go see the website that I put up just to kind of exist, so I have a kind of landing space for this, it's thetalentcast.com. That's right, thetalentcast.com. Otherwise, uh, so there's lots of places to contact me. Leave a review on Apple. Uh, thank you so much to the one person who's already left me a five-star review. I think you went over the top. I think you have me confused with someone else, but I thank you. Um, I really appreciate those reviews. That's how Apple keeps the podcast kind of popping up. Share me with your work-related friends and your HR talent acquisition type friends, and uh, I'd love to hear from you. So thanks with that. I'm going to leave you. Thanks so much for listening in, and I will see you next week. The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert, Warren Buffett, once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.